In chapter 3, the antagonist shows up. Where we landed last week in chapter 2, we are talking about utter paradise. No traffic. Nobody's cutting you off on the 280. No tan lines. Amen. No shame. No embarrassment. No achy back. No threat of cancer. No tears to fall. No death to worry about. No chronic pain, no depression, no anxiety, no massive medical decisions to make, nothing to protect your children from. Paradise. Paradise. Not an illusion like Hawaii. Not a postcard like the Bahamas. Reality. Reality. Reality that you can absorb into your soul, into your bones. And then chapter 3 comes. And then chapter 3 comes. And in chapter 3, the big story takes a twist and the plot begins to thicken as we see corruption and brokenness and hardship and suffering and pain enter into the creation. And what we see in chapter 3 is the beginning of the steady pattern of sin. The same pattern that we will see throughout the big story across every generation. In fact, the very same pattern that we see today, that we see in our own lives. And so we'll look here and we'll see the backdrop of this utter darkness as sin comes in and it begins to... to shade from us the very glory of God himself but 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 across the backdrop against the backdrop of this darkness against the backdrop of this corruption against the backdrop of this brokenness as we will see throughout the scripture there are glimmers of light shining through that the darkness will not win and the darkness will not last that paradise is yet coming again So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And as we did last week, I want to read all of chapter 3. I know that's a little bit unusual for us. We're actually going to be talking about chapters 3 through 6. So if you're unable to stand for that length of time, there is, as your church family, we love you. And we want you to have the freedom to to remain where you are. But for those who are able, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of that tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them then the Lord God said behold the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to where the ground from which he was taken to work the ground from which he was taken he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning you may be seated. As we look at the steady pattern of sin, what I want you to see, first of all, is that sin's promises are exaggerated. That sin's promises are exaggerated. Here they are, and they're in the midst of paradise. And the serpent comes to Adam and Eve, and what he does is he begins to pick loose one of the threads of their hearts. And he begins to pull on the thread and pull on the thread and pull on the thread until ultimately all of it has begun to unravel. He comes to, to Eve and he says, did God actually say, did God really say that you can't eat of all of the fruit of the garden? Did God really say that you have to avoid all of the trees and all of the bounty that he's providing? Did God really say that? And so chapter 3 launches out with an attack, an assault on the character of God, an assault on the word of God, an assault on the integrity of God, an assault on the goodness of God. He undermines God's word and he undermines God's goodness by making to them these exaggerated promises to make things look as though they are different than they actually are, to make it look as though the sin is better than it actually is. One of the exaggerated promises that we see is that sin promises greater gifts than God gives. Sin promises greater gifts than God gives. The serpent tells Eve that if she'll just listen to him, that she'll just pay attention to what he's saying, if she'll just indulge herself on the temptation that he is offering to her, that she'll get what she's missing out on. That, that, that is that God has been holding back on them. 
that God has been refraining from giving them of his very best. Even Adam and Eve would have to acknowledge how good God has been to them. The serpent doesn't even deny that God has been good to them. But what, they, what the serpent begins to do is plant seeds of doubt that as good as God had been, he hadn't been good enough. That he hadn't given him, them the fullness of his goodness. It's interesting what he says that if they will go and eat of the tree, if they will disobey the Lord, what does he say that they'll get? He says they'll be like God, doesn't he? He says, if you'll just go and eat of the tree of the knowledge of, the, of good and evil, then, then you're going to be like God. And what is ironic about that is they're already like God. They're already like God. Do you remember back in Genesis 1 verse 26 what it says in the sixth day of creation? It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That in a way that Satan never was. In a way that Mount Everest can never be. In a way that the angels that are surrounding the throne of God and declaring his holiness right now aren't even made. We are made in the likeness of God. We are made in the image of God. We are made with the dignity of God. We are made in a way that is utterly set apart from the rest of creation. And so the serpent comes to them and he takes this grand promise, this grand dignity that the Lord has made with Adam and Eve. And he says, you know, I know you think that's good, but have you ever asked yourself why it is that God won't give you the rest? Have you ever asked yourself why it is God won't give you the tree in the middle? God has been good to you, but God has not been good enough. I wonder how many of you, if you look around your life, you would say something similar. You see, what we see in Eve is the same thing we see in us. The way that all sin begins. What does it say? It says that she saw it and it looked good to her. She, she looked upon it and it felt desirable to her. That, that when she saw the fruit and she felt the desire that everything that the serpent seemed to be saying was reconciled in her heart, that it made sense that what she saw aligned with what he said. And for us, it's the same, isn't it? For us, it's the very same. That we believe, we convince ourselves, and we allow Satan to deceive us into believing that God is holding back from us. That we see with our eyes and we begin to feel emotionally and we begin to want things that God has said we shouldn't want. And we begin to do things that God has declared are unfit and unholy for us to do. And we do it because, because we believe that God hasn't been good enough. You look around and all of your friends at school are sleeping around. And you believe it's it looks awesome. It looks wonderful. It looks delightful. It, you, you see it with your eyes and it's fruit that looks good to eat. And it looks as though it would be desirable for you. And it feels as though God is holding something back from you. You go to college and you see the frat parties and everybody else is experimenting. And you want to be included and you want to be a part of the group and you want to, to dial up the, the college experience and you feel like you're ramming against this wall and crashing into these fences. It looks good. It feels right. It feels reasonable. And it feels as though God is withholding from you something that is enjoyable, something that is delightful. It feels as though God is withholding from you his best. 
You look and you see marriages that appear to have deeper intimacy and greater romance. And you begin to say, what? I deserve that. I deserve what he has. I deserve what she has. And next thing you know, someone begins to pay you attention. And you're getting to a place and you're having thoughts that five years ago, one year ago, six months ago, you wouldn't have been able to believe. And what you're saying as you begin to to entertain the thoughts in your mind is that God is withholding from me something that is right, something that is good, something that I deserve. And as often as we look on Facebook and drive by homes which we covet and, and see friends which we wish we could trade places with, time and again the serpent is winning the battle of our minds as we look and we see and we long and we want and we feel. That God, God has given us good things, but there are greater things there for us. Things that are more enjoyable. But sin also promises greater freedom than God allows. Sin promises greater freedom than God allows. Freedom is really front and center of our story in Genesis 3. That if you think about the way that Eve responds, right? Like, it sounds really good. When, 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 when Satan comes and he says, did God really say? She says, well, no, God, God said we can eat of all the trees of the, of, the, of the garden except for the one in the middle, and we can't touch it lest we surely die. That's what she says, right? Except that if you will take what she says in verse 16 and you compare it to what God said in chapter 2, you'll notice that there is a glaring omission. It's actually harder to see in the ESV, but if you, virtually every other translation, the ubiquitous translation is that God goes in chapter 2 and he tells them what? You can freely eat of any tree of the garden. You can freely eat of any tree of the garden. You come to verse 16, do you see the word freely there? Do you see the word freely there? It's not there, is it? It's not there. That Eve, when she responds to Satan, there's already something happening in her heart. There's already something taking hold of her mind. There's already, there's already a cynicism, a skepticism that is growing in her. As she responds to this, to this uh, interrogation about the goodness of God, she responds by holding back on the good things that God has given her. See, the tree in the midst of the garden doesn't highlight the constraints of God. It highlights the generosity of God. It doesn't highlight the bondage of man. It highlights the freedom of man. That God had created paradise and God had created a garden. God had given them more than they could ever eat, more than they could ever enjoy, further expanses than they could ever reach. He had given them more to explore, a frontier. They could never find the end of it. And their question is, why can't I just eat that one? Why can't I just eat that one? Why is my freedom so limited, Lord? Why are you holding back on me so profoundly, Lord? Why are you withdrawing from me such great and enjoyable things? Not only that, but we see that Eve is the first Pharisee, don't we? Eve is the first Pharisee. She is the first hypocrite in the church. Praise the Lord. The only reason I'm here this morning, by the way, is because this church is filled with hypocrites. I'm just adding to the number, baby. And it all started with our original mother. You know, she adds something to the word of God. That's what Pharisees do, isn't it? She adds something to the word of God. She says that we cannot touch it lest we die. Did God say that? God never said that. 
God, in chapter 2, when he places it, he says, don't eat of the fruit or you will surely die. He never says anything about touching it. But she does what Pharisees do. She does what humans do. She takes the law of God, and then she begins to construct a law around the law. She takes the word of God, and she begins to add to it and build around her own fence and her own regulations and her own rules. And then, having built such regulations, having added to the law, she points to the law, and she says, look how oppressive God is. Look all that God withholds from me. And she constructs God in the image of an overbearing father when God has been a generous king. She constructs the image of a tyrant when God has been a kind and benevolent and charitable sovereign. And man, that's the temptation, isn't it? That's the temptation. To create this new construction of God so that God appears unreasonable, so that God appears irrational. And once we've constructed an image of God that is far less generous and far less glorious and far less good and far less gracious than the God of reality, then, then, then we reject against the construction of our mind. We reject against not his word, but our elaboration and extrapolation of logic of his word. We reject not his law, but our addition to the law, the laws that we have built around him. That we are not constrained by God's law, we are constrained by the law in our own hearts, by the little Pharisee that's in all of us, accusing us, corrupting us, making us miserable. See, if you're going to abandon God and God's design, you've got to change the construction of how good God is. You have to. I want you to think of the last sin in your life. Think of the last sin in your life. The the last sin in your life that you justified. We we probably haven't made it through the last five seconds without some kind of sin. But the last sin in your life that you justified. And I bet, I bet that if you think about how you justified that sin, you'll see the remnants of Genesis 3. To that sin, you either said, did God really say? That is, did you take the word of God and twist the word of God to be able to accommodate what you wanted it to say, to be able to compromise and make what you want to do as though though God has given you the license and the permission to do it. Or, Or you looked to that law and you said the opposite. You said, God is too hard. God has told me I can't even touch it. And so now God is unreasonable. God is irrational. God is unkind. God is uncharitable. And so I'm going to rebel against my overbearing father. And I'm going to tell my overbearing father to get off my back. I deserve better. How is it that you're justifying the sin in your life? Are you attacking the goodness of God? Are you attacking the reign of God? Are you pushing back, wanting more good, wanting more freedom, believing as though God has been holding back? Are you buying the exaggerated promises of Satan? That his promises can provide for you a more joyful, a happier, more satisfying life? Because you see, in light of all the sin that's promised, In light of all the freedom and fun and significance that is promised, the reality is different. When we actually read the reaction of what happens in the life of Adam and Eve, you can tell that it goes completely differently than what they expected, right? 
They're expecting that they're going to eat of this tree in the middle of the, of the garden and they're going to have this ethereal experience, this transcendent God moment where they're going to be exalted, where they're going to be greater than everything else, where they're going to be the one to whom everything answers. That they believe that they're going to be exalted, but rather than being exalted, exalted they are ashamed. They are ashamed. All of a sudden, in an instant... They realize their nakedness. Remember how chapter two ended? How chapter two ended in paradise and it said that they were naked and they were unashamed. They were unaware of their nakedness. They were unaware, they had an unblemished conscience. They had no accusing voice. They had no inhibitions with one another, no separation from God, that they were there in the midst of the garden without a concern in the world. And yet here, as soon as they take up the serpent on his promises, it's the opposite. They go and they begin to look for a place to hide. They create man-made coverings, sewing together fig leaves as though that's going to accomplish anything. Because in a moment, they feel the separation from God. They feel the awareness and ashamedness between each other. And they begin to retreat back within themselves. That is, that their experience was that the promises happened in reverse, in inverse, right? Reaching for greater gifts, they took hold of a curse. Seeking greater freedom, they found themselves in bondage, leaping for greater significance. They lost their meaning, trying to be like God. They forfeited the full glory of what it meant to be a human being in the image of God. And what they discovered, what they discovered is what each of us knows, that, the, that sin's penalty is unbearable. Sin's penalty is unbearable. God had breathed the very life into their bones and now they were hiding from him under the bushes as though they were a three-year-old hiding in the closet because they just colored on mom and dad's walls. See, the, per- the serpent had promised Adam and Eve there would be no consequences. That's the same thing he promised you in high school. It's the same thing he promised you in college. It's the same thing he promised you as you began to text the lady that you worked with. It's the same thing that he promised you as you began to to lust after things that you couldn't afford. It's the same thing that he promised you as you began to walk against what he had called you to live, against the dynamic of your family, against the, the leadership, against godliness. He looked at you and he said, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. There will be no consequences. Instead, God is withholding and he's putting the integrity of God to the test. See, God had said that the wages of sin was death. God had said the wages of sin was death. But the serpent had convinced Adam and Eve of the same thing that he's convinced you of. That all that was was divine gaslighting. All that was was grandstanding by the Almighty trying to manipulate you into obedience. Trying to manipulate you into doing what he really wants you to do. Trying to manipulate you away from having the life that you can actually have. Trying to manipulate you away from taking his throne. From taking his glory. From taking his great name and what you found what you found maybe it wasn't the next day maybe it wasn't the next week but what you found or what you will find is that the weight of the sin and the weight of the sin of the shame comes crashing down on you with a force that causes your knees to buckle that causes your life to crash around you that causes your heart to begin to unravel 
So we begin to read about these curses that comes against the earth, the curse that comes against mankind. And what we see is that the sources of blessings are now also sources of pain. They were commanded. It says as soon as, that God, as, soon as God makes them, God blesses them. And when, he, when God blesses them, what does he say? He gives, them a, he gives them a mandate, doesn't he? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. That is, that your blessing is that you're going to make more bearers of my image. You're going to, to, God is going to use you to populate the earth with image bearers of the Almighty. And by populating the earth with image bearers of the Almighty, you're populating the earth literally with my glory, literally with my splendor, literally with my majesty through you. It was to be a, 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 a perpetuating of the blessing. And now that blessing, that blessing that was supposed to be the great delight of Adam and Eve is the invitation of pain. That yes, children will still be a blessing, but having children is going to be painful. Having children is not going to be simple. Having children is going to, going to bear in its essence the, the pain and the groaning of the creation that sometimes the baby won't make it and sometimes the mom won't make it and sometimes things will go amiss and the life will not take off in the trajectory that is natural and expected. No, because it is under the curse of our first mother. Marriage was supposed to be a relationship that demonstrated the gospel. It was supposed to be a picture of, of, the, of the Son of God coming and, and living in permanence and joy and delight with his bride. But now instead, the, the wife will long for the authority of her husband. Her husband will rule over her and be harsh with her. The institution that was supposed to be a source of blessing will become a source of pain, of hardship, of suffering, of which many of you have the scars today. Sources of joy are now also sources of misery. It was supposed to be joyful for Adam to rule over the creation. Joyful for them to work the ground. Joyful for them to eat of the, of the bounty of God. To eat from the Lord's table, from the Lord's orchard. But the ground's going to get hard. Weeds and thorns and thistles are going to grow. That which was to give a demonstration of the provision of God, of the generosity of God, of the kindness of God, is going to, at the same time, give evidence to the groaning of a cursed ground. That God had taken them from the dust of the earth. And God had formed Adam from the dust of the earth. And he had put him together bit by bit, granule by granule. But one day, one day, because of his sin against God, because of his rebellion against God, he would return to the dust of the earth. The one which God had breathed life into him will at last take life from him as he rots and returns to dust himself. See, this is the first time. This is the first time in all of human history that we read the word pain that we read the word pain. This is where pain starts. This is where pain in your body began. This is where pain, mental anguish began. This is where you, the, the loneliness in the middle of a crowded room began. This is where depression began. This is where anxiety began. This is where fear began. Before Genesis chapter three, the world had never seen fear before. The world had never experienced fear before and yet here they are hiding underneath trees covering themselves in leaves trembling pain has come fear has come that's why Paul writes what he writes in Romans 5 12 
says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. That's what chapters 4 through 6 are covering for us. It says, as soon as we get to chapter 4, you have the, the birth of the first two sons, Cain and Abel, right? And in Cain and Abel, what we learn is because our first parents sinned, we are all born sinners. You can imagine the hope, the hope that Eve had when she gave birth to Cain. She describes Cain in a way that she doesn't even describe Abel. Cain was her hope. She probably believed that Cain was the one that God was going to use to overthrow the serpent, to crush his head. She, she even says out loud, she says, I have created a man just as the Lord did. I have created a man just as the Lord did. What is she saying? There's a fresh start. There's a fresh start. His father and I have failed. His father and I have brought a curse. His father and I have invited consequences into the earth so that the earth is, is groaning, so that the serpent has more power and more authority than he ought. The earth is, is struggling and filled with thorns and with thistles and with darkness and with brokenness. But I, I have made a new man. I have made a new man as the Lord had made us. Until he strikes his brother dead. You see, when Cain kills Abel, he kills the hope of Eve. When Cain strikes down Abel, he is signifying to us that sin has come and it is an abetting reality in the life of the human being that it has been inherited from our first family. It has been imputed to us and passed down from us to the next generation. And we aren't just dipping our toe in sin. We aren't easing into sin. No, we come out of the gate with jealousy, envy, and murder. There's 1,100 chapters in the Bible. On chapter 6, chapter 6, chapter 6, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. See, the problem of sin is pervasive and universal. So God brings judgment upon the earth that is just as pervasive and just as universal. The earth, the earth needed to be baptized. The earth needed to be washed clean. And so the rain fell and the waters rose until the birds were able, not able to find anything on which they could perch their feet and rest their wings. Babies were crying and mothers were screaming and men were shaking as the water rose above their heads. The judgment had come. Pain. Pain had come. Pain had come. See, when the serpent convinced Adam that God had lied and they wouldn't lie, he left this part out, didn't he? When the serpent made all of those exaggerated promises, he left this part out. He left out the gory details. Adam couldn't have imagined that his sons one day would kill each other. Eve couldn't imagine that one day she would be there at the funeral of her son as one was going to the ground and as one was being banished to the far reaches of the cosmos. She couldn't have comprehended it. It couldn't have conceived that eventually over which their responsibility would cause the whole creation to be drowned because of their judgment. See, they sinned on this day, but they couldn't see the consequences of the next day. They couldn't feel the shame. They felt the desire. They felt the indulgence. They felt the craving of the body. 
but they couldn't yet feel the shame that was coming. They couldn't yet feel the heartache that was coming. They couldn't yet conceive of the fear and the trembling and the shame and the, and the bondage of their conscience and the accusing voice that's in the dark of the night. Sin's penalty is unbearable. Satan will try to manipulate you and minimize his, pen, his pain, but he won't be there to comfort you. He leaves out the glory, de- glory, gory details. He leaves you drowning in your regret and your rebellion until it suffocates you, and he always leaves that part out. I wonder how many of you, you've seen it and it looks good. You feel it and it feels right. Can I just promise you, tomorrow you won't feel that way. Five years from now, you won't feel that way. A decade from now, you won't feel that way. As your children reap the consequences of your unfaithfulness, you won't feel that way. As your marriage reaps the consequences of your ambivalence, you won't feel that way. As as you reap the misery of your own accusing conscience, you won't feel that way. But the story isn't I say that one more time. The story isn't finished yet. You see, Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 and the flood of 6, 7, and 8, they are about the love of God and the grace of God just as much as they are the justice of God and the wrath of God and the judgment of God. That since promises are exaggerated and since penalty is unbearable and since pain is paralyzing and since problem is pervasive, but since power is temporary, my brothers and sisters. See, the message of Genesis is the message of the big story. It is the message of the whole Bible that God deals severely with sin, but graciously with sinners. That Genesis 3 intends to build a tension into our hearts, a question into our minds of how will God respond? Let me ask you, how would you respond? How would you respond? How would you expect God to respond? We're we're talking about subjects who tried to overthrow their king. We're talking about sons who betrayed their father. We're talking about masters that are, are, are servants that have rebelled against their master. If you're writing the story, if you're watching this on TV, how do you expect it to come again? How do you expect it to come out? We have a group of people that have been given by God and blessed by God and experienced God and walked with God and had no separation from God and they have yet rejected God. How do you expect God to respond? Do you know how he responds? Do you know how he responds? He loves them. He loves them. He loves you. He responds to their wickedness, to their rebellion. By loving them. They're hiding in the bushes, covered in fig leaves, trembling, and God pursues them. God pursues them like the shepherd that leaves the 99, like the prodigal son's father who runs from the porch. The father goes after Adam and Eve and he stalks them down and he finds them. Do you know what he does when he finds them? He assures them. He assures them. Like a father who just picked up his son from jail and before the night goes out, his goal is to make sure that though his son understands the severity of the situation, that he still loves him. Do you know where we hear the gospel for the first time? Genesis 3. 
Genesis 3. Genesis 3, that the serpent will bruise your heel, but I will raise a son through you that will crush his head. I will save you in spite of you. I will redeem you, though you appear broken beyond redemption. I will use you through your sin to advance my glory anyway. You see, Genesis 3 tells us from the beginning in the shadows that sin is going to lose, that the gospel is coming forth, that God will overcome our brokenness, that God will overcome our pain, that God will overcome our wickedness and he will do it not with our man-made weaving of fig leaves. He will do it by his own sovereign hand, by his own glorious will, according to his own glorious name because he, he covers them. The first bloodshed of the Bible is the blood of the animal that is offered, slaughtered, so that he can weave together for them clothings made of animal skin. And he covers them because without blood, there is no remission of sins. And so the shedding of blood happens in the garden as God begins to cover them. And God still, he still, across every generation, across every people group, across every nationality, God, God has to cover the sin. God has to cover their sin. And God has to cover my sin. And God God has to cover your sin. All other coverings are insufficient. And not only does he cover them, we're not even there yet. He blesses them. He blesses them. Eve hasn't had her name yet. You notice that? Chapter 1, chapter 2, there's no name. She sins, there's no name. After, there's a name. What should her name be? What would you expect her name to be? Would you expect it to be condemned? Would you expect it to be, would you expect it to be deprived? Would you expect it to be traitor? Would you expect it to be guilty? No, 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 that is not her name. Her name is a name of hope. It is Eve, mother of all the living. God wasn't finished with Eve yet. Those babies hadn't been born yet, but there is a promise that she will not go to the grave before they are. She has not given birth to the future generation, but those babies are coming. She will be the mother of every nation. She will be the mother of every king. She will be the mother of all people. She will be the mother of God's own son. It will be through her seed. It will be her offspring that God will use to send his son to be bound up in swaddling cloths and placed in a manger to go and anoint on a cross that he might give himself for us. You would think he would strike down Cain, but he spares him because God spares sinners. You would think he would wipe the earth clean and start over fresh. But through Noah, God saves a remnant because God always saves a remnant. He establishes a new covenant, not of works this time, but of grace. When he hangs his bow in the sky as a promise that his salvation is not temporary. You see, Iron City. In every glimpse of God's love, in every expression of God's grace, we are being beckoned. We are being called to look beyond the first Adam that condemned us to the second Adam that will save us. The first Adam was born into paradise, but sinned and excluded himself and corrupted it all. The second Adam will be born into corruption, but will live a life of righteousness, of holiness, and he will redeem and renew every bit. The first Adam brings the curse, and the second Adam becomes the curse. 
Through the first, we inherit death. And through the second, we inherit life. Because you see, it is the second Adam who will be bruised by the serpent and placed upon the cross. He will go into the earth and the serpent will slither above head, believing that he has been victorious. But on the third day, on the third day, that second Adam will come out of the ground. The stone will roll away and the serpent that is slithering overhead will have his head crushed finally by the second Adam. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Iron City, when you look at the curse, don't you look at the curse without first looking at the cross. And when you look at your own sin, don't look at your own sin without looking to the cross. For as as Paul meditated on the, on the tragedy of the fall, on the heartbreak of Adam and Eve, his mind could not help but going to the love of God and to the grace of God and to the kindness of God when he writes, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God still works like this. It has been accomplished. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.